Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. I always ask people who's the main character of this show, and they always go Roxy or Velma, or whatever. So it's like, no, it's Chicago. Wow, it's Chicago. good point. Yeah, because I mean, Billy says it. In a couple of days, nobody will know who you are. And that's Chicago. That's what the show is about. It's so not about you that it's going to forget about you once this is Ooh. all over, you know? Yes. Um, that's what this is about. That's Chicago. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we are talking about the legendary musical Chicago. Did you like that? I had like a little Chicago accent because I'm an actor. I heard it. Yeah. Anyway, (laughs) we're talking about Chicago with someone who knows the show very well. He is a very talented director, choreographer, dancer, actor. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Coriel Wright. Ooh, I would give myself my own applause there. Hey, <laughs> once again, we're actors. That's what we do, right? <laughs> Corey, tell me, how do you know Chicago? When did you come into the whole world? Um, actually, I, I came into the world of Chicago before I auditioned for the show. I remember uh, being in New York, living. I, I moved there from uh, Louisiana, uh, which is, is that where from. you're from originally? Originally, yes. Um, Baton, I think you're the first person I've ever met from Louisiana. Baton Rouge. I'm telling you, we are so charming. I'll, let you, <laughs> I'll just give you that right now. <laughs> um, but I, I moved to New York, and one of the first show, shows that I saw was uh, Chicago. And I remember seeing it and being so enamored by uh, the simplicity of it all, and then also the talent was on th- that was on stage. And then um, I remember seeing this number with three individuals, Roxy and two boys, and mm-hmm. I didn't know it at the, uh, at the time, but it was me and my baby. Fast forward a few years, and the tour was getting ready to go out. I saw the audition notice, and I didn't want audition. I wasn't going to audition. And there was a friend of mine who was like, no, you should come audition with me. I was like, no, I'm not doing that. Have you seen the bodies in that show? I'm just not that type of, of body because I'm, I'm a svelte individual. There's a lot of skin. Or yeah. should we say a lot of sheer fabrics? Wrapped over every inch of your body. <laughs> All your secrets <laughs> just out there. <laughs> so um, he said, just come and support me. So I went to support him. Audition was at 10. Show up at 9. You stretch, warm up, that sort of thing. 9.15, there's no him. 9.30. There's no him. 9.45, there's no him. 9.55, I call him and say, hey, this is before, te- before texting was huge. Hey, where are you? He goes, oh, sorry, I got drunk last night. I'm not coming. It's like, Stop it. How dare you, sir? <laughs> and I decided I'm going to stay anyway because I had always had this fascination with Fosse as well and his work and his, his movement um, and a little bit about my background uh, there's such an intricacy in uh, his work. You approach a lot with isolations. And I studied under uh, someone who studied under Marcel Marceau, who is a mime. Oh, wow. Um, Talk about isolation. Yeah. So it it talked about, you know, different leading centers of the body, indications with with hands and body parts and fingers and gesturing and and, and things like that. So I was always fascinated with Fosse's work. I stayed and I did this uh, audition in 2007. And uh, they made a, a cut. Um, and it was ballet. And I was like, ah, I got this. <laughs> easy, easy. Because I was, I was a bunhead for, for so long. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then after that, the next cut, and they were like, 
Let's do the combination again. So I do the combination again, and I'm so confident. Jeffrey, I'm so confident. I'm like, like, I got got this. this. Because most of these people in music theater, they don't know how to turn out. That was my thing at the time. Lo and behold, I never finished this combination because in the last four eight counts, I run my long lanky behind into the casting table, water bottles, laptops, candy falling all over the place. (laughs) Gary Christ, who I love, I'll call Papa Gary. He looked at me, he's like, "Uh, Corey, you okay? I was like, yeah, my pride's just a little hurt. Uh, You know, I'll call call (laughs) y'all. That's what this is kamikaze into the casting table in the middle of your dance call absolutely and we actually talked about this with another cat once we got cast uh, a little bit later on <laughs> and somebody was like yeah i remember you were all in my space i was like first of all it's not, it is not snap. my fault that you don't know how to travel okay <laughs> Get stay in your window <laughs> yeah but <laughs> exactly <laughs> but i remember calling a friend of mine in canada so you know it was serious because canada wasn't free calling then wow, um, that's, and that's i was like I ran into the table and I don't think, wait, hold on. Hello? Uh, yes, this is Corey. Oh yeah, call back tomorrow. Yeah, sure, I can uh, I can do it. Okay, great. You better book that call back <laughs> while destroying their laptop computers. That's fantastic, Corey. It was amazing. So then from there, was with the show and I've been with the show since 2007 and I was with it for literally over half its life uh, at this particular point. Wow. Um, traveling all around the world, um, to Japan, Taiwan, Dubai, Korea, every nook and cranny of the United States. I've had the opportunity to choreograph the show at the uh, Moonlight Theater in Vista, California. I've yes, had to, to course, choreograph theater. it with Plan B Entertainment with uh, one of my good friends, Leslie Stevens, who I did the show with at the Hollywood Bowl. <laughs> so I have a long, long history with the show and it, it sits in a, a good place with me. That's so beautiful. Yeah. I love that. Okay. Chicago is a fascinating show that I think we take for granted now because it has been, I mean, it's one of the longest running shows in Broadway history. And the production of it that is one of the longest running shows is a revival. Correct. So the history of Chicago is something that I do think we take for granted. And I want to talk about it right here at the top. We have so much great stuff to talk about today. I'm really excited. Mm -hmm. First of all, the musical Chicago is based on a play. Correct. Of the same name, written by a woman named Maureen Dallas Watkins. And Maureen was a reporter. She was a journalist in Chicago during the 1920s. And at that point, Chicago was known for its crime. I mean, it kind of still is. Cough, cough. (laughs) (laughs) Call it out. (laughs) Legit. And she she wrote that play in uh, 1926. And it's important to note that during that time, Chicago was fascinated with these uh, women that were killing people. You know, they they were murdering people. And it was usually a, uh, a heat of passion type of situation so they oh were of course of course because women have their periods and lose their minds like it's right. always something you know what i mean we love right. even now like on oxygen network it's always what what is that show hold on i am looking that up right now you look it up because now i'm curious oxygen network oh my gosh there are so many killer <gasps> couples <laughs> snapped snapped is the one i'm thinking of mm. which actually c- could be called cell block tangoed 
<laughs> a little, little mouthy, but that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> it's a lot of lyrics. Yeah. Um, okay, so you're exactly right. And and in particular, one of the females everyone was so fascinated with at this time in Chicago was this woman by the name of, what's her name? Beulah, right? There was Beulah and Belva uh, Gardner. You have Beulah Ammon. And her big claim to fame was that she was the prettiest murderess you'll ever see. Mm-hmm. Ridiculous. Yeah. But her story very much follows Roxy Hart's. She killed her lover. Um, she confessed everything right off the bat. I was jealous that he was going to leave me, so I, I shot him. Then all of a sudden she gets this fancy lawyer he comes up with this whole scheme that she was under the influence of alcohol and jazz when she made that confession. They lie and say that she's pregnant. Really, word for word, she she gets off unscathed, but then ends up dying four years later in a sanatorium. <laughs> oh, darn. <laughs> crazy. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's crazy. So based on this main story, mm-hmm. she creates this play called Chicago, all about this character named Roxy Hart. The character of Velma Kelly is actually very much a supporting character at this point, not at all like a dual lead thing that we know nowadays. Right. <laughs> nowadays. <laughs> oh, I see what you there. did there. That's nice. That was totally by accident, but I will take the credit. I'll tell you a story about that song later. Ooh, please yeah. do. That play gets turned into a silent film and then gets turned into another film starring Ginger Rogers called Roxy Hart. And both of those films totally take away the satirical look at America turning criminals into celebrities. In fact, the Ginger Rogers movie is basically a rom-com in which Roxy Hart is being charged for a murder she didn't commit and then they all live happily ever after. Right. There's none of that kind of dark, sleazy commentary on the press and and America that that Chicago has now. Mm-hmm. Now, later in her life, writer Maureen has like a spiritual conversion and comes to regret writing Chicago. Yeah, she thought she was glorifying murder, glorifying jazz, glorifying, well, jazz in Texas, pretty much kind of the same thing. In the world yeah. of Chicago, it, they're synonymous. Yeah, yeah. She became a born again Christian and decided, you know what, I don't want to, I'm going to put this thing to bed. So when it comes to the musical version, mm-hmm. Gwen Verdon, legendary dancer, singer, actress, Gwen Verdon, is the first one to come across the project and be like, hey, Bobby Fosse, who is still her husband at this point, but they've been separated. Mm-hmm. I want to do this show. When they go to buy the rights, she says no. Yeah, she says no. And it's not until she passes away and the people who are in charge of her estate are like, cha-ching, we will absolutely sell you the rights, <laughs> right. that the musical Chicago really starts to to unfold. Now, I think this is this is really embarrassing, but I think this is the first time we are talking about Bob Fosse in a very concentrated way on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Legendary choreographer-director, talk to me about what you love about him, period, question mark. I, period, question mark, exclamation point. Um, <laughs> I love the fact that he took things that were imperfections to him mm. and created a whole vocabulary of movement that's easily recognizable. Now, what's interesting about it is, uh, speaking about Gwen Verdon and Bob Fosse, their relationship is very uh, special. She helped him to actually develop a lot of what his style was. But what people don't know is that a lot of his style is based off of Jack Cole's. 
when you think about Jack Cole, with Jack Cole, he's he's amazing. He doesn't get enough credit because he is, for all intents and purposes, the father of theatrical jazz. He's the one that took ballet and contemporary, or not contemporary, modern, with uh, ethnic influences and black social dances from the Savoy Ballroom, which is the only integrated ballroom in Harlem, New York. Oh my gosh. Teach us. Teach yeah. us, Corey. This <laughs> yes. is amazing. He would go to these places and he would take everything, put it in a choreography jar, shake it up, and then spit stuff out. So when you think about the drop center with the erect torso and you know some of the, the hinges and things like that, a lot of that came from Fosse. Now how Fosse got it was through Gwen because Gwen was one of uh, Jack Cole's dancers. So when the two of them collaborated, Bob and Gwen, there was an understanding that they had about creativity and a she, common language. Yeah, yeah. And they they really understood one another in that sense to where they could work through things artistically and forget about the personal stuff on top yeah, of that. So fascinating. I love the way that he he approaches things with and I remember going into the room and uh learning the choreography for the show for the first time and being excited about getting this movement language on my body because it sit right with me. And then years later, Gary Chris is the one who said, said it on, on us, who was Ann Rankings' right-hand man. He came back years later, and he would go, you still don't have it. <gasps> and I'm like, but I've grown so much. But that's the beauty of his movement. It's always a pursuit. It's, wow. never, it's never an achievement. Once you figure out how to do a tendu, you figure out how to do a tendu. But with that type of work, there is a, a special type of sitting inness that needs to happen. It's it's a perch, but it's a relax. It's a fire, but it's a cool. It's 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 so much of a difference between two things, and it, it it makes things visually interesting because you can stand there and just breathe for four eight counts with just a shoulder roll, and all eyes are on you, which has to come from a place where you feel comfortable within your own skin. Which brings me to my next point of something that I love about his work is the fact that he said, "I want dancers who are not so terribly aware of themselves that they're afraid to roll around on the floor and just act silly." You know, um, there's, a, there's a place for everyone. Long legs, short legs, round, fit, voluptuous, not muscular. Everybody had a, a place in it. You just had to do the work to fit into that particular place. Wow. That's the best, most concise perspective. I've, I've read so many Fosse books and mm -hmm. what you just said now, I hope everybody appreciates, was really, really beautifully said. Thank you. Thank of you. Of course, of course. Yeah, I love it. I love it. FYI, if anybody wants a little bit more perspective on Jack Cole, go back and listen to our Gentlemen Prefer Blondes episode where we talk a lot about him Nice, uh, because he's fantastic. Now, Bob Fosse grew up performing in vaudeville, mm -hmm. a very notoriously sleazy part of our performing history in America. And he was a young kid. So that was very formative in terms of how he felt emotionally and what he created as an artist. Mm -hmm. Out of that, like you said, he began to develop a style based on his own imperfections. Because in ballet, you have a very specific technique, a very specific body alignment. And Bob Fosse was notoriously slump-shouldered mm -hmm. and also a little turned in. What we would consider pigeon toed, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And since those are two things that are huge no nos in the ballet world, he's like, well, screw it. Peace out. I'm going to create a style of dance that kind of celebrates that. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of this like slinky type choreography that we now think is so stereotypical, Bob Fosse, is actually born out of something very personal, very emotional. And maybe even traumatic. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, most of them were like that. Jack Cole was suppressing his, you know, sexuality in that way. Sure. So a lot of it came out, and he learned. Uh, one of his huge influences was Ted Sean from the Dennis Sean Modern Dance Company. Ted Sean was married, but also gay. And he, all of his movements were warrior-like, and they were his commentary on what masculine identity was during that particular time. So Jack Cole was like, I want women to dance like men, men to dance like women. Fosse's the same way. And it's important to note that a lot of his stuff, it, people generally tend to associate it with the slinkiness, but it's a lot of it was super percussive mm. and, 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 and sharp and exact. And when you think about something like uh, Sweet Charity or Pajama Game, those are very different from a Chicago or a Pippin, you mm-hmm. know. So there's there you have these variants of how he approached that the situations with uh, his imperfections on both ends of the spectrum. So whatever it was, he was emoting and did it in, in both of those ways, which I feel like is is the core of what jazz dance is. And he was very, very good at that. One thing that I hadn't considered is one of the things that make Bob Fosse's choreography so fascinating is that he was obsessed with paradox. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's having his actors say, I love you, but think F you. Right. And it's, it's the same thing in his choreography. It's like you said, what did you say? It's hot and cold. Yeah. That's so cool. Now, at this point, when Chicago comes around, mm-hmm. he ha- is in full auteur status. He has gone from being a choreographer in pieces like The Pajama Game and Damn Yankees to being full-fledged director-choreographer in shows like Pippin. He has already won the Academy Award for directing the film version of Cabaret. Mm-hmm. When Chicago starts rehearsals, the concept for this musical was, once again, Bob Fosse bringing his vaudevillian experience to it. They are going to go back to the nitty-gritty satirical criticism of celebrity criminals Mm -hmm. by using vaudeville. And also by using the styles and, I'd say, dialects even, of Brecht, of Bertolt Brecht. Now, here's somebody else we can talk about. Get ready, everybody. We're talking about all these great people. Brecht. Yeah, we talk about Brechtian style all the time in theater. What does it what does it mean? What is it really? Bertolt Brecht was this German dude born in the late 1800s, grows up in the Weimar Republic, which ultimately gives way to Nazism. Mm-hmm. And since that is his experience, what he explores as a writer, as a playwright and a director is criticisms on capitalism and materialism. That it is all a facade. It's all BS. That yes, it can do many good things, but when you're focused on it, you lose track of everything else. So in exploring those themes, he creates a style of theater to support that criticism, Mm -hmm. which is to show theater for what it actually is. Instead of it being a facade, instead of it being this place where an artificial setting is brought to life magically, we are going to show the brick walls. Instead of a bunch of performers on stage performing for an audience that they're pretending isn't there, they are going to break that fourth wall that we often talk about in theater and talk directly to the audience. Mm-hmm. Vaudeville and Brecht, that was Fosse's vision for Chicago. He teams up with the composers from Cabaret, Kander and Ebb. Mm-hmm. Another great episode to revisit if you want to get into those guys, because man, Kander and Ebb. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. And they do not phone in their work in this show. It's Absolutely. incredible. Yeah. Yeah. That music. I mean, like from that first five, six, seven, eight, when you Ta-da. hear oh, uh, like you're, you're I don't know what happens all these years later. And I haven't done this show. I think last time I did the show was uh, well, when I choreographed it was last 
Oh, oh my gosh, we've been in this pandemic for almost over well for over a year. Okay, great. Okay, that's fine. I'm breathing yep. now. I am breathing. Yep, we're um, breathing. We're breathing. Tears are coming down our face, but we're breathing. <laughs> right. <laughs> downward spiral um, <laughs> was the summer before that was my last but that music mm. gosh when i'm telling you and i've had a chance to actually talk to john kander stop uh, it and to uh, tell me everything i visited uh him in a friend of mine lived in peru at the time and he was visiting this friend i was visiting his friend at the same time um his name Wait, is Mark. in peru in peru yes because this peruvian star was one of the billies on in chicago Oh my gosh! Okay, so, so we wow. met we met doing Chicago in uh, South Korea, and I went to visit him. And while I was visiting him, John Kander was visiting him as well. Now at this time, I had written this musical that I just wanted John to read, and and he ended up reading it. And he was like, "I really love it. I love the direction that it's going, and and, and that kind of thing." So that that was a, a good thing to me because this brother's not read a lot of stuff. Oh my um, gosh! But he. The stories that this and I was like, John, you have to write a book. You have to write a book. And he was like, no, I don't think I will. I'm like, no, there's so much history in your bones. You have to get it out. And that story about nowadays, I'll go ahead and tell it right now. Ooh, tell it right now. Yeah. So they were doing the out of town tryout for Chicago. I feel like I think it was in Boston. I can't be sure. You mentioned that in 1975, you know, Fosse was pretty much at the height of things. But what was amazing is that he still felt like he was not doing enough, that he was not good enough, that it was going to be his last one, that internally that people were going to figure out that he was a a sham. We call it imposter syndrome these days. Brother was suffering from a mad case of imposter syndrome. Um, And at the time, one of his biggest rivals was Michael Bennett. So they, they had this little thing going back and forth, back and forth to the point to where Chorus Line was originally called Chorus Line. But he added the A in front of it so it could appear in Chicago, the fourth Chicago in the program. So it could be a chorus line and then Chicago, which <laughs> which show up in the lineup. Uh, I appreciate that level of pettiness. Um. Absolutely. Look, nothing like a little game of competition to make you perform at your best. Exactly. So what I did for love was a, a, be- was a beautiful song in a chorus line. And Fosse wanted a What I Did for Love in Chicago. And he was like, really? I need a song like that. I need a song like it needs to be a song that makes people feel that same type of some type of emotion. And it wasn't a very easy process working with him from what, you know, John was saying. They almost quit the show. Did they really over this? Yeah, Yeah. because when people get stressed and they don't know how to deal with it, they take it out on everybody. And back then, things would fly that would not fly today, you know, as far as like the treatment of of, of individuals. There's an entire generation of directors, including my friend Jerry Robbins, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) which he's not actually my friend, but it's just a thing that I always say. Uh, (laughs) Jerry Robbins, Gower Champion, Michael Bennett, Bob Fosse. I call them the great manipulators from here on out. They're the generation of of the great manipulators who are geniuses and go about it in a very psychologically damaging way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So th- they almost quit, and they wrote nowadays in like, and that was me snapping my fingers. Because that's what Canter and Ebb do. That's what they do. Man, that's what they do. Yeah. That, they're incredible. They can spit out a song in no time flat. Because of that, their their music never feels tortured. Those yeah. songs always feel so easy. Yes, it, it, there's no way that it could have been born out of like excruciating uh, writing session. You know what right. I mean? Right. There's but an ease to it, but still so intricate as well. Like, yes, exactly. There's so much appreciation for people who dig that deep. There, there's more treasure for you. And that's Kander Neb. And that's Kander Neb. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. So they so they wrote nowadays in in yeah, and they actually wrote it so quickly and took the rest of the day off. <laughs> it's like Good I'm for killing. them. And gave it to him, and obviously he was happy with with what that is. But um, going I back- love that Chicago's version of what I did for love includes you can even marry Harry or mess <laughs> around with Ike. Like it's not exactly <laughs> yeah Diana Morales, but like good for good for you boys. Yeah, right. Exactly. So they they <laughs> I mean it fits what it is absolutely because it still has be- to fit within the show. Yeah, they let you know from the beginning, but you <laughs> spend the next two and a half hours laughing and yeah. rooting for a woman who just killed somebody. Also, going through the script this week before we recorded, I was surprised to remember how little dialogue there is in the first act. Mm-hmm. I mean, it moves so quickly yeah. from number to number and yet never feels abrupt. Mm-hmm. In many ways, the construction of it does feel vaudevillian and yet we miss nothing narratively because of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and that 1975 version... Fosse wanted so badly to be a, a writer. He wanted to be a writer. I mean, he was an EGOT, so he got all of those. Yeah, um, he's doing fine. They gave him writing credit for it, even though uh, Fred was the one who... It's really Fred. Yeah, it's really Fred. Um, yeah. And then when they went into the 1996 version, they cut things. I mean, it Did was they like... Really? They slashed it to the point to where <laughs> when we were choreographing it and uh, we're learning, learning the show, when we had to do actual speaking parts, we would add like... So uh, we would get, uh, it's not in there. The script is an, is an economy in and of itself. It's economic. Yeah. Don't add anything. Doctrine. Don't, yeah. Keep it what it is. Somebody, wow. <laughs> and a friend of mine, Greg Butler, who was one of the, uh, like my artistic brother, another person that put me into the show. Um, he said, somebody stayed up until 3 a.m. writing that. <laughs> so you got to honor the words on that page. <laughs> and it's so true. And, you know, we feel like we have more to offer the creative process and you still can within that that limit. So it is true that that 1996 version is is shorter, but they went through with a fine tooth comb and took out anything that wasn't unnecessary. And every, every word was thought every, of. Exactly. Every word was thought of. Um, and what's important about that is kind of swinging the conversation in 1975 it did okay yes it it did absolutely let's talk about this because this is really important in 1975 it did okay but at that time people didn't necessarily need to see a show about celebrities getting away with uh murder with murder because it was the 70s it was about love and peace and Mm -hmm. fast forward to 1996 we have oj simpson Mm-hmm. And I remember watching this trial. The whole world was looking at this little white Bronco speeding down the highway after this murder had happened. And obviously, we know O.J. Simpson is who he is. Right. Um, and I, I remember mean, being in junior high and the teacher turning on the television so we could all watch the verdict. Yeah. When has that ever happened? Ex- right. Exactly. And it doesn't even have anything to do with us. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it, and it wasn't because he, you know, donated a million dollars to charity. It wasn't because he found a cure for cancer. It was because he had killed somebody and he was running. And it keeps happening. I mean, you've seen this meme. Stop making stupid people famous. The fact is, there is this thing about individuals who are celebrities and us glorifying them and letting them get away with anything. <laughs> Donald Trump. Sorry. There was something in my Whoa, throat. Was there my something bad. in your throat? Yeah, just a little something. Uh, oh, it's okay. The hairball. It's okay. I think we. I think we got your point. <laughs> yeah, but you th- you think about it, and it, it happens all the time. It happens all yes. the time. We see these celebrities that have that get away with things just because they are celebrities. Where is the line of accountability that gets smudged because of who they are? 
Um, and even this idea that your best defense is to turn yourself into a celebrity. Right. Even if you aren't already one. Yeah. Right. It, that the that the best way to get off is to make sure that the American public knows exactly who you are because then they won't want to kill you. Yeah. How many crime docuseries have I watched in the past five years? I, I, right now, I'm sure there's like 10 on right now. Uh, Absolutely. Like, under just in the last year. I mean, like right now, Ryan Murphy's getting ready to do a, a mini about Jeffrey Dahmer. Who needs to see that right now? I don't want to see that. And, and, the, the and I thing, don't want to eat my dinner watching that for sure. But there's all these different ways that um, dumb things can make celebrities out of people and how celebrities do dumb things and get away with them. The, the, the timing of this was interesting and it's, it's been running and it's never died down as far as relevancy goes. This is a musical. And whenever I go into classrooms and talk to kids, mm-hmm. uh, I always classify this as a Joseph musical. And by that, I mean ahead of its time <laughs> Be- <laughs> because it, it it is while it was appreciated in 1975 it was mm-hmm. incredibly overlooked because of a chorus line a chorus yeah. line you know being this huge smash a chorus line wins all of the tony awards mm-hmm. and also one thing that i find really interesting they go into rehearsals and then bob fossey has a heart attack he goes into the hospital Mm-hmm. has a bypass surgery, after the surgery, has another heart attack. You know, lo- long-time smoker for who knows how long. Mm-hmm. Uh, so not exactly the most healthy lifestyle. But all of the stress as well and pressure that I think he was putting on himself in order to create something really important, really special, yeah. takes its toll at this very moment. So when he came back, they they get back to work. But I think the severity and pressure continued. And from what I've seen, I didn't see the original 1975 production and I know that there are probably people out there who did. But from what I've seen in terms of the artwork, how the show was marketed, how the original cast recording sounds, and the performances that still exist on YouTube, mm-hmm. I would say that the original production is much bleaker. Mm-hmm. That it takes itself a l- more seriously. Absolutely. And I, and I can't help but feel like that was from Fosse really trying to do something quote-unquote underlined special and important. Yeah. And by the time the 90s come around, not only has our culture shifted into a place where we, I think, are more ready to receive this ahead of its time musical, the revival also took itself much less seriously. And I think it benefits everything in the show. Mm-hmm. Thinking about those snaps and razzle, dun 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 dun, they weren't always there. Right. And so they, they, the, the fact that they were like, how can we get him to like this song? Add some snaps. <laughs> Add some snaps. Loves, Bobby loves yeah. snaps. Yeah. And and that sh- number, Razzle Dazzle, was originally a an orgy. On it the was an the orgy. Court. That's what I'm yeah. talking about in terms of like Bob maybe taking things a little too seriously. <laughs> yeah. So they were like, tap, tap, tap. Hey, uh, you might not want to do that. Yeah. Let's bit. lighten this up a bit. He took it really seriously. He took it really far, as far as he could take it. Well, do you know what? This is a really great opportunity to talk about this. And it's something that we discussed when we uh, did an Instagram live about the film version of West Side Story. Mm-hmm. So much of that script and the lyrics were sanitized for mm-hmm. the film version. And I think sometimes we forget that in theater, we have a really beautiful tradition of pushing the envelope, of doing things and saying things that can be controversial or Mm -hmm. confronting for an audience. And then there was actual legislation and laws like the Hayes Code in the Mm -hmm. back in the day for film and even the rating system 
that forces artists to, you know, participate in censorship in order for their art to get made. And so I, I think that's something to be proud of in terms of our musical theater heritage. It's like, no, we have a lot of brave artists who have done a lot of really interesting work that they couldn't yeah. have done on film even if they tried, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so that's something to continue on in the future. Yeah, I, I, and I... I would have been like, yeah, let's do the orgy on the steps of the courthouse. That's just <laughs> <laughs> theoretically speaking. I mean, like in in the space of a theater, yes. Um, because it was a commentary on the justice system. I mean, you think oh, about. Oh, I, I I I I buy that. You know, I love pushing an envelope as long as there's a reason to do it. And you're so right, Jeffrey. In theater, we have this. It's almost like a responsibility to to present that. Yes, things can be entertaining and just you know fluffy. But there's also the reason for the art, you know, to, to present perspectives and to make people think and not to necessarily tell people this is how you should think. But it's like, hey, this is what what's out there. And the challenge is always doing it. And especially with anybody in entertainment is doing it in an entertaining way so that the message gets abs- absorbed, absorbed and not like you're uh, preaching at mm. an individual. I don't think any of his work was like that. I feel like he and I would have been homies, yeah. you know. I mean, minus the smoking, because I mean, they would put can... one cig- one cigarette in his mouth and then take it out and put out the other one. I'm like, that's that's too much for me. I, I like my lungs. <laughs> I can't do this. Uh, <laughs> that's why most of his cast albums just sound like right, like, right. <laughs> Some days you're wrong. <laughs> right. Okay. Let's start at the top of the show. Which can you give us the whole introduction from the conductor? <laughs> you mean like the ver- the very first, ladies and gentlemen? Ladies and gentlemen, I want to see if you can do it. Just to let you know, Mr. Jeffrey Parsons, I have played almost every role in this show. I've swung the show. Every time we come back, they'd be like, hey, we're switching up your 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 track. And you're like, this when is- do I get to do Velma? <laughs> right. <laughs> Throw me some Roxy tights. Um, <laughs> the great thing about this show, and also the thing about this show that makes you go, Gah! is the fact that there, there can't be a vacation swing. There isn't a track that, that one person does. Because what happens is, when you get into the room, they look at you. And then they go, I know Harry normally does this and this, but you're going to do this. And then you're going to go there and then this. And then a Harry from another company will come in and be like, that's not what I do. Each company stands on its own. And it's always it's always different. And it always changes based on height, based on size, based on looks, based on. It really is a show that they fit and wrap around the performers inside the room, which is one thing that I appreciate about it um, so much. So that to say. I done did this speech before, okay? (laughs) So, ladies and gentlemen, you're about to see a story of murder, greed, corruption, violence, exploitation, adultery, and treachery. All those things we hold near and dear to our hearts. A five, six, seven, eight. You didn't let me say thank you. Oh, sorry. I totally interrupted you. My bad. Yeah, you did. No, it's okay. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that opening such a great opening and what, what's interesting about that is the, the direction that um the person who makes that speech uh is given at times it's like pick one of those words that tastes so good in your mouth mm. and say it that way is it murder is it greed is treachery. it adultery you know is it treachery what what of that tastes good and just welcome them into the space make them lean in look at them with murder in your eyes and dare them to look away oh you know so there's there's Goodness. that instruction. Yeah. And and one other instruction, and I, I promise we'll get back to this, is when we do these improvs and all that jazz, right? Yeah. And it's very underwater. So we're almost like the 
the octopus arms for Velma. If she's the the head, we're the octopus arms. And you're taking a shower for your lover in the audience, but you don't want them to know that you're watching. Now, that doesn't mean rub all over yourself. Just know that you're moving underwater. But you're also taking a shower for the person next to them. And you don't want either one of them to know about each other or that you know that they know. That kind of thing. So everybody's got secrets there. I There's am the blushing s- and like my <laughs> eyes filled with water. <laughs> but that's that's what it is. I mean, like there that's why there's such a uh, usually a variety with the show because there's something for everybody on that stage mm-hmm. another way to say it is i either want to be that one or i want the that one yeah you know yeah so something for everybody like there's there's thoughts about you know is billy bisexual you know that's a a question that has come up is mama morton the same way you mm-hmm. know she has this loving relationship with these girls in this jail cell so good old butch good old butch you know so but that goes back to the paradox. There mm-hmm. are always multiple forces going into both the movement and the performance and mm-hmm. even the casting that makes the show really fun to watch over and over and over again. Yeah, it's a dirty sophistication. Yeah. So after that announcement, the overture starts. Now, mm-hmm. how much of the movement in the overture is improvised? Um, there was a point in time in the show where it was 100% improvised. Really? Yes. Um, and then it shifted to being a little bit more structured. And okay. there, there were things that were there. But there was also still room for improv, still room okay. for connecting with, with other people. And the idea is that you're all players getting ready to put on a show and you're rehearsing moves from the show that, are, that you might see later on. Okay, so very much like an overture, we hear little bits of the Mm -hmm. songs that we are going to hear later on in the show. Visually speaking, we are seeing the same thing choreographically. Yeah, and you're allowed to connect with the audience and, you know, wave at them, wink at them, shimmy. Cute. Gyrate, thrust, whatever. (laughs) All while wearing these, like, William Ivy Long 90s (laughs) Stretch lace. (laughs) Stretch lace. (laughs) <laughs> That's when you okay. eat salads for contracts, just salads. <laughs> that being said, I think that the costumes in the 96 version are much more modest than the 1975. Those girls are naked. naked. I mean, you have boys dancing in diapers for me and my baby. Like in Roxy, the men just wore garters and it connected to like a dance belt, I think it was. Or something. Naked, no clothes, none. It was wowzers. It, it was very interesting, and the reason why it became what it was was the fact that they were um, when they did the revival for encores, they just told everybody show up. And, uh, we'll have music stands. Just show up in black clothes, mm. and so then that's when that happened. Then William Ivy Long came on, and you know did what he did, and it, there were did certain a little finesse. Yeah, there were nods to different characters like uh, the Italian businessman, the choir boy, the gangster pants that were you know nods to different things from 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 then but they were okay so while we're talking about it since you have done so like all the roles (laughs) do you have a favorite costume on a on a female no that you wore well okay a female too you know what there is this one costume it is it is a full body stocking fishnet body stocking and you can see her bra and bloomers uh underneath That one is amazing to me. Cool. And for me, I think it would be a uh, button-down mesh shirt with the, the big collar and the jazz popcorn pants because they were textured. That had oh, a nice... Oh, that's cool. So they're not just like the basic shiny Yeah, and they, ha- they had different versions of it. Um, and then they, they flared down at the, at the bottom. Oh, and the, the <laughs> jazz pants with the flare. <laughs> the that flare. is a mood. The flare, so it, but it also informs the way that you improv because if you don't articulate through your feet, like really, then nobody actually uh, really sees it. But 
Oh, that's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Okay, cool. So after the overture, mm-hmm. at least in the revival, you have this great elevator that comes up through the orchestra, which is all seated on stage and almost looking like a like a jury panel or yes. a, a bandstand. Mm-hmm. And up comes Velma Kelly to perform all that jazz. Now, Chicago was the very first Broadway show I ever saw. <gasps> oh, wow. Yeah, 16 year old in all that jazz. And I'm like, this is Broadway. (laughs) So excited. All that jazz was the only number I knew because I had seen it on the Rosie O'Donnell show and I would mirror them. Yeah. And would do all of the little Anne Rankin choreography. That was all I knew about the show. Oh, wow. So you had no clue. No clue. Gotcha. Okay. So we will, as we go through the show, I will continue to give little insights from (laughs) 16 year old Jess. I love it. So all that jazz starts, and it's one of the, I I would say, one of the most famous opening numbers of all time. Mm -hmm. It somehow is about the entire show and also kind of about nothing at the same time. It it allows for this little scene to play off the side, which is Roxy Hart and her lover, Mm -hmm. Fred Casely, doing the what, what, and then him walking out on her. Roxy shoots him because nobody walks out on me. Yeah. <laughs> and and then promptly uh, announces that she's got to pee. Correct. Now, favorite moments of this number. Yes, personal favorites. Uh one is the fact that I take the word jazz and replace it with the word sex uh, throughout the whole number. Great. That definitely informs the way that you move and approach what all that is. Sure. Another favorite moment is something called the domestics and this is when Fred and Roxy are in the middle of the bandstand and they are canoodling, if you will. Sure. <laughs> um, and we're doing all of the housework so that they can do it. But we're not just doing it. We're doing it like d- doing it. <laughs> <laughs> um, You're getting paid on OnlyFans to do it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. This, I feel like Chicago would be the OnlyFans of musicals. <laughs> um, but uh, it's definitely those. Living yes. Life. That jazz. Or that, that sex. <laughs> now, uh, Velma was originally played by Cheetah Rivera mm-hmm. in 1975, mm-hmm. B.B. Newworth in the revival, and has since been played by more people than you can probably count. Correct. Uh, because the revival... Speaking of celebrity. Was, yeah, because the revival was brought to the Broadway stage by Fran and Barry Weisler. Mm-hmm. And these two producers are really great at their jobs. They're also known for bringing in the most bizarre celebrities that probably should never be in a musical just to sell tickets. It's almost like yeah. doing exactly what Chicago is criticizing in order to make sure that it continues to run. Bingo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stunt casting is what they call it. Yeah. They, and I uh, mean, not just Velma, for Roxy mm-hmm. too. Velma, Roxy, Billy. Uh, I've seen Amos, Mama Morton has been, mm-hmm. I mean, they've done it. With, the only person that they haven't done it with is obviously Mary Sunshine mm-hmm. because, um, she there is definitely first a, drag queen I ever saw in my life. Really? Yeah. Once again, did you know Jeffrey from Utah? Did you know when you were watching it? That Absolutely it not. Gotcha. No clue. I would have been able to clock it so easily now. Wait, what year was this? Because I want ninety six. You saw it, it was, in ninety six. Yep. Ninety six. Mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. So then you saw it with the original. I also saw it with Tara. I went back and saw it again in the 2000s with Tara and mm-hmm. Michelle Williams from Destiny's Child. What's, what's interesting, I've done the show uh, since 2008 with Tara, and she has been uh, pre- a pre- pretty consistent uh, Velma for us. And she, the way she's, she did the show first in French, 
Um, so she opened oh, the... Oh, interesting. We're yeah, talking about Tara McLeod. I don't Tara, think yes. I mentioned that before. So, yeah, Tara McLeod. Someone we both know. Yes. Um, she uh, started in Montreal and then Paris, she opened Paris Company. And every time she comes back to approach it, because of what happens in life, the same with anybody in this in this show, hmm. because the more experience you have... This is why I don't think high school people should be doing this show at all. Because, I mean, you can get around the adult things, but there is a seasoned, experiential life happening that needs to be in place for the show to mean what it means and for you to ac- accurately portray what it is and tara like the, the life that she collects as a as a person and she's had the opportunity sometimes we don't get a real rehearsal with these celebrities that they put into the show the first time we see them is when we're on stage with them they do a wow. private rehearsal with the dance captain and we're like if we have to change choreography for them like say a christy brinkley who's not necessarily a dancer so then me and my baby ends up being step, touch, step, touch. So then those boys have to come in, you know, at half hour or a little bit before half hour, learn the choreography and then. And do pres- it then. And, right and do it and then. then. Right. Do, do right then and there. Oof. But she's she's had to figure out in the moment how certain people respond to things like they may get a rehearsal ish if that celebrity requests it. But most of the time they're like, OK, we're just going to put in you stand right there. You stand right there. We go this. We're not going through the whole show. We're just telling you are to stand and this is where all these other people are going to be and um the other principals have to work around and tara is really good about holding people's hands figuratively through that process and being like i got you we're on stage together we're we're, we're good yeah wow that's a whole skill set and also feels absolutely terrifying listen (laughs) yeah okay so after all that jazz the narrative structure of the show mm-hmm. is truly established mm-hmm. in which the conductor, the same one who did, you know, or the ensemble member, whoever did the little speech beforehand is uh, going to be introducing all of these characters and their songs. And in a very upfront way, saying exactly what their intention is, which yeah. always plays against whatever song they're doing. So Correct. in the case of Roxy Hart, who has just, you know, been, arrested for murder Mm -hmm. she is singing about her husband who's currently going to be taking the fall her her husband amos hart Mm -hmm. and it's this lovely song dedicated to her husband that feeling takes a big right hand turn when amos hart realizes the guy who was murdered was actually somebody they knew that his wife knew which proves that they were actually fooling around i will also like to point out that in this version she Kills this man on February 14th, a.k.a. Valentine's Day. So she's cheating on her husband on Valentine's Day in Chicago. I never noticed that. Yes, child. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Happy Valentine's Day, Amos Hart. Right. Exactly. While he's working at the garage. I mean, yeah, I love on. you, honey. I love yeah. you. <laughs> right. Exactly. When you think about the character of Amos. In 19- he's simple. He's, he's simple. But he's also a complex human being. He's married to her. So at some point, he had to muster up enough courage to ask her out. So yeah. to me, that's a confident individual. Also, later on in the, in the musical, you find out that he borrowed money from guys at the garage. That was in a mm. big amount of money then. So that means there had to be a level of trust that they had with him in order to loan him that money. He was working on carburetors in the 1920s. Cars were fairly new. So if you had a job working on cars, you had to understand something about the technicalities. You were an intelligent individual. That's and a, true. And a carburetor was such a complex piece of of car equipment they got discontinued i think it was like in the 80s or the 70s or 80s something like that uh cars now so like he definitely had a like a skill set yeah and he he did it for he loved he loved her you know he was like go do your thing jazz go ahead get the Mm -hmm. have here's some bonbons he bought the bonbons he he encouraged her to go be a chorus girl 
sit yeah. there and eat your chocolate. Yeah, be pretty. And he gets upset. And he's like, she's up there munching on goddamn bonbons and jazzing. Well, this time she pushed me too far of that little chiseler. I understudied him as well. Boy, yes. what a, a sap I was. you know. And so then he, that whole thing, that's when she turns and she's like, that dummy, crummy, scum, you know. And, All of those Fred Ebb yeah. amazing lyrics. Right. If he only had a brain, what a half wit he'd be. Oh my gosh. <laughs> right. The whole thing. I'm like, are people listening to this? Um, and the first thing she says when she comes off that ladder is, you disloyal husband. <laughs> Child. <laughs> <laughs> Don't it always seem to go? <laughs> right. um, that That's hilarious. Now, Roxy was originally played by, of course, the legendary Gwen Verdon. The show was built for her. No one moved like her on stage. Listen. And in like all-time best dancer? Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Also, she was in her 50s doing this role. Listen, this is why I was saying- So if we ever (laughs) criticize people for being castable in, in some show, remember legendary Gwen Verdon originated Roxy in her 50s with like vocal notes. (laughs) <laughs> I never liked you. <laughs> Legit gives all of us hope. Right, exactly. Don't give up. I mean, with between that and Burger King out here selling tacos, you can do anything. <laughs> <laughs> you can do anything you want to do. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. Okay, after funny honey. Oh my gosh, there are so many great moments. But yes, so now we go to the Cook County Jail Mm -hmm. where the females who are all imprisoned for, you know, allegedly murdering someone perform the cell block tango. What a freaking fantastic number. Right. I mean, they say, they they actually admit to the murder. It was a murder, but not a crime. Okay. Ooh, fair enough. So. Absolutely. In that way. Again, heat of passion. He deserved it, whoever it was. Now, I have two stories about Cell Block Tango. I want to hear them both. And don't forget, you have a surprise for me. Yes. And one of them is the surprise. Okay, great. (laughs) So story number one, once again, 16-year-old, didn't know anything about the show. When the cellmate steps forward and says, I met Ezekiel Young in Salt Lake City. I'm like... (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sitting in my chair and I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, here comes a polygamy joke. Like, I already know. People usually aren't that inventive when it comes to LDS humor. It's either about coffee or about multiple wives. So I'm I'm prepared for the polygamy. Anyway, she goes, one of those Mormons, you know. And little 16-year-old me goes, (laughs) woo-woo. And the woman sitting next to me, total stranger, at intermission turns to me and she goes, are you a Mormon? And I, and you know, like bright faced, I sure am. So then, get this, the next night I go and see Steel Pier, another Candorneb show, which funny enough, also has a polygamy joke and cellophane. Go figure. Anyway, I'm sitting in, I'm sitting in my seat waiting for the show to start. That same woman... <laughs> Comes and sits behind me and says, well, if it isn't my Mormon friend. <laughs> only in Sandra's, New York. Sandra's last name. <laughs> <laughs> so bizarre. Are y'all Instagram friends now? Right. <laughs> We're besties. Uh, I DM her all the time. Now, the funny. other crazy story that has to do with Cell Block Tango is the original Mona from the revival, mm-hmm. I love Alvin Lipschitz more mm-hmm. than I could possibly say. Was mm-hmm. is a, a woman named Caitlin Carter. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Do you know her? 
I don't know her personally. No. She's all over the those posters. She's got the little blonde pixie cut. Yes. I think yeah. she's in that full body stocking thing that you were talking about earlier mm-hmm. in terms of your favorite costume. So I'm on my mission as an LDS missionary in Texas speaking Spanish. And I go to church and talk to this family who's actually a, a, a white English family. And they find out that I'm a big musical theater fan. And they say, oh, do you know the revival of Chicago? And I said, of course, I saw it before I went on my mission. And they're like, oh, well, we know Caitlin Carter. You probably don't know who that is. And I said, of course I do. She played Mona. And they're like, <laughs> really? You know who that is? So then they write to Caitlin Carter (gasps) and Caitlin Carter sends a signed headshot (gasps) to Elder Parsons. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And here it is. I love it. She looks amazing. Doesn't she look fierce? She is in that body stocking. She is in it. And just imagine like a sweet little LDS missionary (laughs) carrying this around for two years. I can't. The comedy is too much for me right now. (laughs) It's ridiculous. But it says, Dear Jeff, thanks for loving theater. Caitlin Carter. That's really sweet. Caitlin. Isn't that cute? She's amazing. I don't even know her. If anybody knows Caitlin Carter, please tell her, I'm the one. I'm the missionary she sent a nudie patootie uh, (laughs) headshot, signed headshot to. It's not nude guys and gals. It's not. I mean, for an LDS missionary. Right. That's pretty that's pretty much porn. <laughs> she looks stunning in that. She looks yes. stunning in that. Beautiful. So those are my cell block tango stories. I love them both. All of these women mm-hmm. are very much guilty. We get that. Except for one. And her name is Honyak, mm-hmm. who was originally played in 1975 by Graciela Danielle, who you may know for choreographing Once on this Island, Ragtime, incredible director-choreographer. That was her original role. And she's, I believe, Argentinian. So interesting that she had to learn uh, Hungarian, Hungarian for this. So Hunyak is the only one who is not guilty. Not guilty, yeah. It would be boring if she spoke English. Mm. Do you know what I mean? To talk about that. Um, her imperfection is her inability to communicate. Um, but further still is people's disregard to want to learn how to communicate to her in that way. It's just like nobody ever interacts with her except for Mama Morton and Aaron. Right. And even then he's talking to Mama Morton to get through her. And he's just trying to say, say guilty, say, say gu- guilty. guilty. And she's like, not guilty. It makes me feel bad that there's punishment because there's a lack of understanding. And it makes me yeah. think about how psychologically, how psychologically we do that to people. When we don't understand them, we punish them for whatever things. You don't deserve the same rights because I don't understand. Yeah. You know, We're not guilty of being anything but who we are, but we're still damaged psychologically because somebody else doesn't understand what that is. If that wow. makes sense. Yeah. Yep. So that's yeah. what I got to say about her. She's, I, I, love, I love her. That's beautiful. That's great. Right after, I believe, Cell Block Tango, we meet the woman who's in charge of all of these prisoners. Her name is Matron Mama Morton. Yes. Uh, another song that is just full of some of the best Fred Ebb lyrics we have. Mm-hmm. Um, they say that life is tit for tat and that's the way I live. So I deserve a lot of tat for what I've got to give. I mean, yeah. come on. When, <laughs> when You're Good to Mama. Great song. Big and burlesque. After this number, and we can kind of speed through a little bit more of the plot, okay. but Velma 
and Mama Morn have this agreement, right? She's she's kind of acting as both the warden of this prison, but also everybody's talent agent. Correct. And this is a brilliant piece of writing that happened before they got to Broadway. They originally had like an an entire talent agent character that got eliminated, mm-hmm. and then all of his stuff was split between Mama and the ensemble or the, the conductor who yeah. gives those introductions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's a new celebrity on death row, as it were, and that's Miss yeah. Roxy Hart. Yeah. So the minute that, because we love to pit two females against each other, the minute that Roxy comes in, there's this antagonism because she's trying to steal the spotlight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Roxy isn't, uh, she's no clue about what she's doing. Even in the way that William Ivy Long has designed this, what they call a baby doll dress, it's ill-fitting. It's loose. The sleeves are loose. Oh, so yeah. it's it's like she's it's like she's a kid in this whole world. She doesn't know. She's like, I sure would appreciate some advice. You know, and Velma is who she is. But as the, as you see the show progresses, by the time she gets to Roxy and she takes off, and when they do, and I know I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but when they do both reach for the gun, she has on this um, this uh, blazer, this this uh, jacket, this coat. When you take off the coat, she emerges this sexy woman with a, uh, a sensual woman with this, the, the dress fits now and it's tight and it fits at a certain point. It's a little bit higher and it is low cut at the back. So wow. um, you see that transformation of her going to like not knowing what she's doing to they've created her now. And Getting now a makeover. She, yeah, now she's this, this image. Yeah. <clears throat> but wow. uh, yeah, but uh, Velma is not happy to see Roxy at all. <laughs> Roxy ends up getting uh, Billy Flynn as a lawyer who mm-hmm. is also Velma's lawyer. Mm-hmm. And how would you describe Billy? He's an opportunist. He is an opportunist. He's s- slick. Um, mm-hmm. They say the silver tongue prince. When you think of a silver tongue, everything he says sounds amazing. And it's so quick that you're just like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. I'll sign on the dotted line, you know? Yeah. But he's also very manipulative. His introduction is this number called All I Care About Is Love, oh, right? Legit, that, yeah. that is what he's doing this for. That's why he's a lawyer is for love of justice. And yet he's flanked by all of these really sexy women. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. By the way, walking with fans, which is one of the hardest things to do. <laughs> like I know that people think that those sorts of numbers with like showgirls and fans are very easy, but like leave it to Fosse to find something so simple that is actually also incredibly difficult to make look cool. It is because these these fans, they're made out of ostrich feathers and each one is $1,500 and they're white. So they're all hand so that we have a set of rehearsal fans and we have a set of performance fans. Yeah. Don't mess with the, the performance fans. The girls get them out of the box right before the number. They put them back in the box right after the number and they close them up and lock them because they have to be protected and, 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 and cared for. There's actually a rehearsal when we go to a new city, when I toured, every time we went to a new city, there was a rehearsal on how to hand off the fans. Because just it was to so, hand off the fans. Just to hand off the fans because it oh was so gosh. specific. It's and like, the, where do you stand? Right. And these girls are running off stage and all they have is, is everybody here? Is everybody, is everybody ready? ready? Hit it. And they're running out. So they have... Less less than 10 seconds to get six sets of fans in hands, in the right direction, in the right order. And it, it's, it's, it's like a well-oiled machine backstage wow. of, of things. The thing about Billy, though, is that even though he says that he's only doing it for love, he's really only doing it for $5,000. Correct. He mm-hmm. tells Amos, the only reason I'm here is because you agreed to give me $5,000. And they don't have it yet. Mm-hmm. 
He agrees to take the case anyway, though, because some money is better than no money <laughs> when, <laughs> right. when push comes to shove. <laughs> right. His whole picture that he's going to paint for Roxy is that he's going to try and get the media on her side. Mm-hmm. And one of the key people that he's going to use is Mary Sunshine. Mary Sunshine is known as the sob sister from the Evening Star. Correct. And yes. and she's a pushover. She mm-hmm. can They can always count on her to give a sympathetic view of you know, whatever client he has. So uh, enter Mary Sunshine, who's this, you know, sweet, beautiful soprano singing... A little bit of good. A little bit of good in everyone. Mm -hmm. Going back to the criticisms on capitalism from, like, the Brechtian approach to theater, Mm -hmm. in this country we do have freedom of the press, freedom of speech, all of which are incredibly beautiful, and I'm so grateful, like... Truly, truly, I wouldn't want to have been born anywhere else. Right. And with our capitalistic nature, how many of us have been in a career or at work and have had a higher up say, well, we're still running a business here? I think we all have. Oh, yeah. Right? That we can have all of the ideals and spout all of them and believe them. But when it comes down to it, we're still a capitalistic society and we're still running a business. And so the same applies to the media. If they have access and can frame a story that's going to get more eyes on the paper, more clicks on the Internet, for the most part, they're going to do it because it's still a business. Yeah, it's also lazy, I think, because in order for you to present uh, both sides of something, you have to do your due diligence and know what both sides of those coins are and mm-hmm. not be biased, in which case you're just you're just an opinion in that way. Nobody has time for that. Again, I blame the Internet and social media as great as the Internet is. But social media, everything has to be quick, quick. You have to be the first one. Mm-hmm. Kobe Bryant, when he first passed, they didn't even go through the proper channels. TMZ just released it. Kobe Bryant's dead. It was more important to be first than to be respectful. Exactly. And that's what we're dealing with today when you think about uh, the media. They, it's more important to be first than it is to be respectful. It's more important to be first than it is to be true. It's more important to get the clicks than it is to present perspectives. Like as much as I do enjoy the media at times to be able to get information, you as an individual have to do your due diligence and make sure that you're watching all of them and seeing the different perspectives of things. Well, and that kind of discernment is required in an audience who sees Chicago because Mm -hmm. you can, I think very easily, and I know many people who have seen Chicago and walk away thinking that it is just a story that celebrates Mm -hmm. sex and murder. Yeah. And what it requires of us is to have this conversation after seeing the show. Yeah. It requires us to look deeper, see the intention behind the work, like all of these wonderful anecdotes and stories that you're telling us, to really grasp the profound nature of what a show like this is trying to tell us. Yeah. When people leave the show and they're like, oh my gosh, it was so good. Sometimes, sometimes every now and then it would make my heart hurt. Mm. Um, because as a performer, you do want people to comment on uh, you know, your legs and your body and like, oh, my gosh, how do you do that? And oh, it, the, it was just so great. Did you did you, get, did the, you get the, it? Did you get the message? You were rooting and laughing and and hollering and stomping and, and, and obviously applauding because she's, you know, performing and there, there's talent there. You're rooting for this murderer. You want her to get away with it. You want her to to be OK at the end of what this is. And that should give us pause. We should be able to take a moment as an audience member and be like, 
huh, right. why am I feeling this way? Right. And not that I want people to walk out like, oh my gosh, I'm so heavy. I need to go journal. No, no. Um, but just to, just to think in pause, and maybe they do, maybe they do. And, you know, but I just, I just hope that that's there in place mm-hmm. because there is a, a level of responsibility when being presented with information uh, like this. That's so cool. Yeah. Well said, well said. After all of the reporters are in place to hear Roxy's statement, there's this, it's one of the most brilliant numbers in the entire show. I love uh, the number called, they both reach for the gun, in which Roxy becomes a ventriloquist dummy for Billy in order to uh, sell the story of her being a, a, a woman caught up in, in jazz and liquor, basically a reformed Form sinner. sinner. Right, right, yeah. It's great. Yeah, it's one of the hardest ones. Uh, Is it really? <laughs> for us, because it's so intricate. People don't realize this, but we're dancing on two and a half-ish panels of of Black Marley. So when you get 13 ensemble members plus two principals in all in the same space, but I do love that particular number. It takes all of the breath and it always causes the anxiety right before because you know it's coming. I would say there are some numbers in musical theater where it requires all the breath, all of the energy, and then you don't get anything in return. <laughs> like the audience could care less. That is not the case with this number. No, so that's not at good. all. Yeah, yeah. It works. The press is all about uh, Roxy. They buy her story, hook, line, and sinker. And now we have one of the most iconic monologues in all of musical theater history. Miss mm-hmm. yes. Roxy Hart. I don't know. There are so many iconic lines in this monologue. Yeah, there are. And... I, again, I always go for the emotional value of things. When she goes, uh, Amos, sweet Amos, who never says no, you could love a guy like that. And mm. I, in my in my mind, I always go, well, why don't why don't why you? don't you why don't you? Isn't that interesting too? Because he never says no, and yet it's not until all of Billy's promises that she says now she's going to have a world full of yes. It's like, girl, it sounds like you had a world full of yes because Amos never said no. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a beautiful monologue. It's done differently by every Roxy that I've ever uh, done it with. Um, one of my favorite, favorite versions is from uh, Dilys Croman. She started off in the ensemble and then uh, she ended up being Roxy. And the way that she, I mean, her body is amazing. The first thing I ever said to her. <laughs> which now looking back I'm like Corey you're just pushing it was I said I want to put butter and hot sauce on your legs and just like eat it off <laughs> and she was like oh, oh, oh okay and she's like HR <laughs> but at that time I wasn't in the show I just walked up oh, to her okay. and, you know and uh, Thank so she was like and I never thought that I would be I would be watching her on stage and dancing with her and then I vent- wow. that en- ended up happening and I was like that she was actually a one of the dreams come true for me so it was it was it was great but she she does a great uh version of this this monologue oh yes yeah shout out i love that shout out that's really beautiful Mm -hmm. thank you so roxy performs her song called roxy Mm -hmm. uh she gets herself a whole bunch of boys that of course leaves velma on her own and she realizes that maybe maybe the only way to continue her dream of being on the vaudeville circuit is if she teams up with Roxy, like, because mm-hmm. the only thing better than one murderess is two. So she does this great number called I Can't Do It Alone. Man, another fantastic song full of great lyrics. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Roxy is, she's interested, obviously, because she wants to be a chorus girl, but she mm-hmm. can't show her hand too soon. No, of course. 
Enter Go to Hell Kitty, and she kind of proves what we've been talking about all of this episode, which is that in a moment, your celebrity can be taken away. Just as it was taken away from Velma, right. she enters the place because she's killed four people after finding her husband in a menage a quoi? Is that how yeah. you say it? I, well, I mean, he wasn't necessarily her husband. They were just oh, playing. Oh, was he not? They were playing house. In this 1975 version, it was... Uh, her cousin, I think it was. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, but uh, Harry is just somebody. He's just a, he's she's funding his lifestyle. You Got know, it. So because she's, an heir, she's a pineapple heiress. Correct. So she comes in fiery as, as you know what and steals all both of their thunder. So mm-hmm. they close the first act singing, I am my own best friend. Yeah. And at the very end of it, Roxy gets an idea. So she faints. Everybody's like, oh, what's wrong? And she goes, I'm sorry. It's just that I'm having a baby. And I was like, a baby? And then Velma goes, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Awesome way to end the first act. Right. Let's breeze through act two. Velma comes out on the ladder. Hey, suckers. She's feeling bad for herself. Mm -hmm. Roxy then comes on and performs Me and My Baby. So you told us that you saw the number. Mm-hmm. Me and my baby and loved it. Then you got to do it? Not initially. It took years. And it, I remember the specific contract. I walked into the room and I walked up to the person setting the show and I said, hey, I want to do baby. <laughs> I, I had already, I knew it already. Say what you need. Exactly. I walked into that room and I said what I In every incarnation of the show after that, that was the truth that I did. And I love that number, Aww, you know, so much. Um, but yeah, that, that number, which again was originally performed in diapers is uh, a celebration of the lie. You know, it's, it's a big wink to, mm-hmm. to the whole thing. You know, I don't care. My baby's there and baby's bound to keep me warm. You don't have a baby. You don't have a baby. Right. She's not pregnant. After me and my baby, is it a uh, cellophane? Uh, yes. Because Amos, who, you know, has been really furious with his wife, once he finds out she's pregnant, she's not actually pregnant, he's ecstatic because that means he's going to be a father. Yeah. Billy tells him the kid's not yours because he wants to make him so mad that he tries to divorce Roxy Mm -hmm. to once again create more sympathy. Correct. All of this kind of manipulation, while also feeling completely expendable, leads him to sing Mr. Cellophane. Yeah. Another great, very vaudevillian song. I love that number. After Amos sings, we get When Velma Takes the Stand, which is kind of like another I Can't Do It Alone. She's yeah. doing like her one-woman show. Yeah, she's like, I can't do it alone, but I'm not going to do it alone because I'm going to do it alone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's basically Velma telling all of the things that she's planning to do when she takes the stand for her trial. Because Correct. while Roxy's been, you know, the, the thing of the moment, yes. her trial date has been pushed back. Roxy is being coached by Billy about what she should do on the stand. She's kind of throwing a lot of attitude and saying what she will and won't do. Mm-hmm. She's being a spoiled celebrity, we Correct. can say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What brings her back to earth is that Hunyak, Miss Not Guilty, is convicted of the crime and is sentenced to death. And what I think is interesting about this is that I don't think that it was the fact that she felt bad for this Hungarian woman as much as it was. It was terrified uh, for herself. Yeah. She was like, oh, a woman got hanged? Oh. So it's, it's a sobering moment in, in that place. And it almost goes south again until she says that she's scared. And then we get to 
Dun, 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 dun. It actually is probably the most real moment that we get from Roxy is when she says, Billy, I'm scared. She may actually be found guilty of this. Mm -hmm. And he says, don't worry. It's all showbiz. All of this is a game. And I'm essentially the best player at it. Uh, So let's go give him the razzle-dazzle. Yeah. That confetti that the Revival has Mm -hmm. that showers down looks like the most expensive confetti you've ever seen in your life. Two stories about that. One, they sweep it up put it in a bingo spinner and get all the dirt out and then reuse it. Because sometimes you'll see hair <laughs> as you're on stage and you're like, wait, wait, wait. Chick, you on the other side of the stage. Why is your hair falling down over here? <laughs> so there's that. And then also they used to be a lot smaller. But what happened was, well, someone was singing and they'll make you a star. And her mouth is open and one got in, cut her throat. No. And so they had to make it, make them bigger because she choked on it. Oh, so that's exp- crazy. One way or another, they expensive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if it's if it's not for surgery, then it's for something else. Right. After Razzle Dazzle, there's this entire sequence of the actual court case. Looking at the script, there's mm-hmm. very little direction right. given as right. to how to even stage it. Every once in a while, it will be like. The judge claps on this word, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I have to believe that it's a pretty complex one to stage. It is. It is a musical number in and of itself. Great sequence. They put on the show. The show works. And right before Roxy is about to be told she's been fi- found not guilty, mm-hmm. at that very moment, a reporter comes in yelling and screaming, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. You should see what's going on out there. There's this babe and she shot her husband, his mother. And the defense attorney. There's blood all over the walls. It's terrible. But what a story. And the media runs out to cover that. And the Roxy's blood. like, ah. Yeah. But what about me? Wait, what about me? And she, in, in, in that moment, we see another true version of her where she's like, he says, you're found innocent. Who the hell cares about that? We're all the photographers, the reporters. I was counting on that. You know, the celebrity. Mm. Because she was still looking for something to validate her. That's what it's all about. Validation within herself. And she doesn't get it. Yeah. Um, because she's looking in the wrong places. And that leaves her alone to sing nowadays. Yeah. And, and I think about the lyrics of, of nowadays and how she's going through everything. There's men, there's jazz, there's booze, there's life, there's joy everywhere. You know, you can do this if you want to. You can do that. And it's heaven nowadays. And then that, there's this one line that gets me every single time when they say in 50 years or so, it's going to change, you know. But oh, it's heaven nowadays. So it. It begs you to live in the moment, Hmm. but celebrity doesn't mean everything because it can be ripped away from you in 2.5 seconds. I have to say one of the things I'm walking away most from with this episode is a whole new respect for that song because I didn't ever see it as enjoy it now because it probably won't last, right? Especially if you're going to live in this world of razzle-dazzle celebrity. Yeah. Um, Yeah. If that's what is important to you, by all means, enjoy it because it's not going to be here forever and get ready for quite a somber moment when it leaves. Yeah. And, and, the, and, the, and the, the number before that, which we didn't mention, was um, class. Um, oh, I which, forgot about class. Which is most people do, <laughs> which was cut from the, the from the, the movie. Uh, the movie. It talks about how people these days, they just do what they want to do. Kids mm-hmm. are running around their own books. Just, it's like whatever, whatever happened to that. And we have these two women singing about this who are probably two of the most classless people (laughs) singing about where is uh, is the class so so um, great that song 
in the middle of a nowadays situation, you know, um, how far is too far with living in the now? Yeah. So that's great. What that brings us to is a double act from nowadays. We bleed into this performance of now Roxy and Velma who have joined forces, just like Velma had suggested to uh, become, you know, the new stars of vaudeville. Mm hmm. They perform an extended version of Nowadays and then go into... Hot Honey Rag. Hot Honey Rag. Oh my gosh, I totally forgot about Mary Sunshine. So during the trial, one of the big like nails in the coffin in the not guilty verdict is that Billy basically says, you can never judge a book by its cover and then walks over to Mary yeah. Sunshine, this really sweet reporter lady, mm-hmm. pulls off her wig. It's a man. A counter tenor singing for his life. Yeah, seriously. What a great surprise. And then Mary Sunshine, now in his male drag, comes out and announces their last performance, which is the Hot Honey Rag. Hot Honey Rag. How often do we get a female dance duet in a musical that has no singing? It's just, it's just dance. How? What a, what a gift. It is. I like moments where dancers just get to dance. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I, and I get being a triple threat. I understand. But what feels good about that number is just you're just watching two females, you're just watching them dance and do what they do, which is which is so great. So it, it, it really is a beautiful end to everything. Um, if it's your last show, this is the moment where you start, you know, wiping your tears because it's getting you know, weepy, you, you get weepy, happy um, kind of a situation. But it's great. It's great. I love that number. They're showered with roses after their performance. Mm-hmm. And then they both step forward to address the audience. Yeah. Uh, Velma talks first. She's like, Roxy and I would like to thank you for your faith in our belief in our innocence. Yeah. <laughs> and then Roxy steps in. It was your letters and telegrams and words of encouragement that helped us see us through this terrible ordeal. You know, a lot of people have lost faith in America and for what America stands for. But we are the living examples of what a wonderful country this is. Oh my gosh! Number one, you're an icon. I can't believe that you that just rolled off your tongue. That's freaking incredible. And number two, that gives way to all that jazz, right? Mm-hmm. No, I'm no one's wife because now she. I'm sure she's not going to be with Amos anymore. No, absolutely you know? not. But oh, I love. My, I mean, she Velma killed her husband. So yeah. <laughs> um, and yet they still stand there and they live in a country where they love their life. Yeah, and all that jazz. Are all that sex. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a fascinating show that is as entertaining as it is deep. Mm-hmm. And it really is up to the audience member to decide what they're going to take away from it. And that's Chicago. And that's Chicago. Yes. yes. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much, Corey. Jeffrey, thank you for letting me dive back into my past a little bit and figure this out. And I'm about to just go re-choreograph it in my living room over here on the side. <laughs> just, just go ahead and do all the parts. <laughs> Please. Well, you could, as you have demonstrated. So uh, sign us all up. As always, if you have recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover on a musical theater podcast, you can always email me at a musical podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It would mean the world to me. And while you're at it, follow us on social media, Instagram and Twitter at a musical podcast. Hey, Corey, how can we follow you and everything you're up to? I'm actually not on social media right now. Because I just have to like not do that. But I am on Twitter because I'm petty. So (laughs) (laughs) I like to fight. So if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can follow me at at CoreyCore, C-O-R-E-Y-C-O-R 518, which is the date of my birth. That's amazing. Thank you so much. You've been such an incredible guest. Thank you for your wisdom and insight and uh, and memory. Yes, thank you for having me. (laughs) (laughs) And everybody out there. 
Love the life you live, and live the life you like. There you go. <laughs> it's complicated to say. It's also complicated to do. <laughs> Thank you, Fred. <laughs> right. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.